listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life Pullman Campus, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Good morning. It's somewhat nice to be here with you this morning. Uh, <clears throat> I'm not as nervous as I was first service, but I still am feeling the nerves. If you're new here, welcome. Glad to have you with us. If you missed last week, like Alex said, you have no idea who I am either. Uh, <clears throat> Thad talked last week about how we're changing as a church, and we are becoming our own church. And uh, part of that is some transition, and I'm one of those transitions. I'm coming off onto staff starting here in a couple of weeks, and I'll be doing the home groups. I'll be home group pastoring it. Which, honestly, as I say, that really uh, shocks me. Because when I stepped out of ministry in Montana six years ago, I never thought that I would ever be in this place again. Um, But God has a way of getting us back on the track that he has for us in our lives. Um, I don't want to spend too much more talking about myself right now because I don't like doing that. So I want us to to get into what we're talking about for the day. We've been talking for the last couple of months about... um, excuse me, shaping faith. And we've been talking about what it takes for us to, uh, to really live in a healthy, vibrant community. And we talked about what that looks like in ourselves and the things that we need to, to be involved in, in in the text and in prayer and in worship and fasting. And recently we've been talking about all these different things that are at work for us to be able to have a healthy community. And last week, Thad talked to us about identity, which I think was a phenomenal uh, coincidence, if you will, because we had baptism up here. We had several p- people sit up here and jump in the frigid waters of our hot tub and uh, you know, identify publicly with all of us here that they are Jesus Christ's and that they are following him from that day forward. So that was pretty exciting. Uh, one of the things that Thad did talk about, though, last week was that God made us on purpose. Everything that he did when he formed you, has a purpose. And included in those things are our emotions. Emotions were not a mistake. He has a reason for them. Even though I don't really understand that or can be the first one to admit that I don't see the necessity of emotions, um, kind of like the necessity of a mosquito, I know that God has put those things inside us and it wasn't by mistake because he doesn't make mistakes. So it would stand a reason for us to be able to try to sit here and talk about and think and understand what these emotions are, what kind of things get stirred up inside us and how do we handle it when those things happen. Uh, We're going to jump into 2 Timothy 3 here. It says, but understand this, that in the last days there will, be, <clears throat> there will come times of difficulty. I don't know about you guys, but I know that that is an absolute true statement. You know, there, there's never promise that we're going to be living lives where it's just rainbows and unicorns flying all over the place. We're always going to have times of difficulty in our life. And there are going to be lots of different things that bring those difficulties into our lives. Some of those things are right here listed in the rest of this scripture. For people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, 
arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's a fairly extensive list of uh, different kinds of people that we have all experienced in our lives. And those people have brought different types of conflict and struggles in our lives. And with those conflicts and struggles, sometimes emotions are involved. And sometimes we are the people that are in somebody else's life, that we are the one who is being disobedient to our parents. My children are right here. <laughs> and bring conflict into our lives, right? So the question is, how, how do we respond to those times? How do we respond when those emotions come into our lives and we're faced with that? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? As I was thinking about this this week, so, uh, the analogy popped in my head, or I thought about the, those old games when most people are here about my age or older. Uh, we had those Velcro dart games. You had this soft thing that had a target on it, and they were prepping us to become dart throwers in the bar. And so you had this, you know, the little plastic ball with the Velcro on it, and you tossed it, and you scored points. Uh, well, I was thinking about that, and I kind of imagined us all walking around in, like, footy jammies that are nice and soft and, and cuddly and warm. And as we are walking around interacting with one another, those little plastic balls, those are, like, our emotions. And sometimes when we're interacting with each other, we end up tossing those at each other, and we get hit with an emotion. So now we've got to decide how are we going to handle that. And there are two ways that we can. One, we can either decide to handle it in a healthy manner, or we can do the opposite, which is choose an unhealthy way to, to deal with that emotion. I think that the way that it looks for us to do it in a healthy manner would to be able to just stop in that moment and step back and first acknowledge the fact that you even got hit with anything. And I'll be able to say, oh man, what in the world is this thing? And being able to pull it off for you and to hold it up and look at it and then begin to try to understand what it is that you're holding in your hand. Being able to start to try to name that thing. Because once you're able to name that emotion and understand what it is, then it no longer will control you. And maybe you're not able to do it on your own, and so you have to go to your community. You go to your home group, or you go to your MEAN3, and you say, hey, look, this is what I've been feeling inside. Can you help me identify what's happening here? But regardless of how you do that, you get to the point where you're able to take that emotion, put it back on you, and it becomes a part of you. You grow from that. It doesn't control you anymore. Now, the opposite of that, the unhealthy way that we handle emotions is what we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about today. In particular, we're going to talk about four different mechanisms that we thought were common for everybody when they are faced with an emotion that they don't want to deal with. Um, so we're just going to hit those things. But also I wanted to just kind of throw in there also, like when we are faced with taking that choice and making, uh, avoiding those emotions in these particular mechanisms, there's a, a tool that God gives us 
to kind of combat that. So we'll kind of hit on that as well. All right, let's go into number one. Number one avoidance mechanism when it comes to emotion is anger or vengeance. And the way that we can combat that is with forgiveness. If we look at Proverbs 15, 18, it says, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. I don't know about you guys, but I have, uh, I've been in a few, um, what do you call it, strong fellowship times with my wife. Uh, and if I come to those opportunities with anger, it never diffuses the situation. All it ever does is just heap fuel onto the fire. As Proverbs says, it just stirs up strife and it just keeps on going. James, <clears throat> James says, uh, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I don't know that I need to actually make a much more comment on that. It's pretty straightforward. But I wanted to, to dive into this idea of forgiveness. What does it look like? Why is forgiveness the antithesis for anger and vengeance? And what I wanted to do was look at a story from, the, uh, from Samson's life. It's in, in Judges. And you have the scripture in your notes, but I'm not going to read it. I just want to kind of hit some of the high points of what, what's going on there. Um, so Samson had convinced his parents that he needed a wife, and then he made them find his, this woman that he saw, this Philistine woman, and he said, go get that one for me. So they did. They had a party. They had the wedding. During the wedding, Samson gets um, taken advantage of, as he probably felt, and got angry and left at the end. Um, and then sometime later, where we pick up and judges what you have in your notes, Samson comes back and he's got a goat and he goes to go and uh, meet up with his wife. And his father-in-law stops him and says, "Where well, you can't go in there, what are you doing? And Samson's like, what do you mean? Well, you left and I thought you hated her, so I gave her to your best man. Why don't I take my other daughter instead? She's younger and prettier. It'll work out better. And Samson gets angry. And what does he do? He doesn't, he just jumps headlong into that anger, goes out, captures 300 foxes, ties their tails together, ties a uh, torch to each of them and sends them out into the field and they burn all of their, their crops there. And of course, that does not sit well with the Philistines. Um, all their food is gone, and so they go and find out what's going on, find out it's Samson, and they go and kill Samson's father-in-law and his wife. And it just keeps building and building and building to the point where finally Samson, it ends all with Samson getting confronted with his Philistines, and he kills a thousand of them with the jawbone of a donkey. And, <clears throat> you know, this story is one of a, you know, who can exact the best vengeance on one another? You know, you, you hurt me and now I'm going to hurt you, but not just equal, I'm going to take it up a notch. And then that person responds in kind and it just keeps happening over and over and over. And there are literal bodies in the wake of this. But what could have happened? What could the story have read if Samson, when he was first confronted with those emotions when his father-in-law came out to him and told him about what was going on, if he was able to step back from that situation 
and realize that he was feeling anger and then try to determine why it is he is feeling that anger. Why am I so angry? And being able to look at that and identify and name that, oh man, you know, I'm feeling, I'm feeling like I wasn't enough for his daughter or I feel disrespected because of this or whatever it may be. And he's able to own that and absorb it and then re-engage and say, I forgive you. I forgive you. All those lives that would have been spared if he could have chosen to forgive instead of chosen to react out of anger. Avoiding mechanism, uh, mechanism number two is blame or burden shifting. And our response to this can be taking ownership. I think that the best story we have about this in the Bible goes all the way back to the beginning. Uh, in Genesis 3, we see Adam and Eve in the garden, and they are doing what they're supposed to be doing, and then in comes a serpent, tempts them, they make the wrong choice, they eat the fruit, and then they, their eyes are open and they see that they're naked, and so they run and make clothes for themselves, and that's where our story picks up right here. And they heard <clears throat> the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard your, the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. You know, shame, shame and guilt are powerful emotions that can be a powerful motivator in our lives. Here's Adam He's given the opportunity to step back and look at what's going on inside him. He knows he has made a poor choice. He knows that he has sinned against God. Otherwise, he wouldn't have run and hide. So he has this opportunity to step back and, and really start to look at what it is that's going on inside him. He can talk to God about it so he can understand it better. But instead, what he chooses to do is step back and point the finger. He points over at Eve and says, actually, I, I wasn't at fault here. It was her fault. She's the one that gave me the fruit. In fact, actually, he, that wasn't even far enough because not only did he point at Eve, he was also pointing at God. He said, the woman that you gave me, you're at fault here too, God. So when we start pointing fingers and blaming other people for our own actions and our own decisions and our avoidance of those emotions, what happens is we start to distance ourselves from those people. Our relationships start to falter. There was definitely a disconnect between Adam and Eve from that point forward because he wanted to blame her and take no ownership on what he did. And Adam most certainly perceived that there was a break between he and God even though that was not the case from God's side of things. But we have a responsibility to own up to what 
is going on. We have a responsibility to own those emotions that we're feeling so that they do not end up controlling us and end up making us blame other people and what's going on. Number three, manipulation versus encouragement. Uh, let's read some scripture about these two. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for the building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And Proverbs 14.12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. I love this verse because I think it is a perfect definition of what manipulation ends up being. We get into this situation where we think that we need to control what's happening, so we choose what we believe to be the right pathway to get there so that we can feel justified in what's happening, and all it does is lead to death. All that ends up happening when we're trying to manipulate, manipulate people in that situation is we're exerting false control over our emotions and over the situation so that we can still feel like we're in control. A couple months back, when Thad actually came to me and, and talked to me about coming on staff, um, my first thought was instantly, no. No way. But I knew that that was not what I should be doing. I knew that I, I owed it to him and myself to at least pray about it and think about it. But not only that, I knew I needed to talk to guys that were in my life that know me, that know my story. I needed their counsel into that situation. And so I reached out to some people, and one of the guys, one of my best friends, I, I was really, really nervous about talking to him about this um, because I know his story, and I know where he's been, and I know that he has struggled for many years about feeling inadequate and feeling uh, like he's not enough in the for the people that are in this life. And in his local church, he's involved there as a volunteer and he, he ministers to people and he believes to be called into ministry to be on staff and he's been passed over many times. And I knew that this could fester something up inside him if I had this conversation, so I was really nervous. When I finally got to talk to him about it, he had the reaction I, I knew he would. He was able to stand there and look me in the eyes and say, this is what you're built for, buddy. You go do this. This is what God designed you for. He just encouraged me. He built me up. And the only reason I know that he was able to do that is because in those times when he has been faced with feeling these emotions of inadequacy and not en being enough for the people that are in his life, he has been able to learn how to step back and look at that emotion and name it for what it is, being able to own it and feel it and not be controlled by it. All right, uh, number four. Number four is withdrawal, and the antithesis of this is going to be encouragement. Um, this is the one that I definitely would say is my go-to mechanism. Um, it's my jam, as they say. Um, 
I want to read the verses here, and then I'm going to share with you guys a story. All right. I was hoping that emotions will already work themselves out in the first service, but it doesn't feel like they are. <clears throat> Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs 16, 28. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. And the last one here. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire, and he breaks out against all sound judgment. So it was about 12 years ago. I was in this, uh, the winter break of my senior year at college, and our, we were attending a small church in Montana, and our new pastor came to me, and he knew that I was involved in home groups and that I liked what was going on in there, so he, he asked me one day, he said, hey, I would like you to consider leading our home group ministry. And I had never imagined at any time in my life that I would go into something like that, that I would ever be in ministry. I, mean, I was six months away from graduating college and getting my degree in math and fulfilling my dream of being a math teacher and a basketball coach. But I said, okay, I, sure. I mean, I like home groups, I can help out. So I volunteered and led that ministry for six months and during those six months, I was able to interact with all the home group leaders and give them training and I learned more about home groups and our home groups were doing well and my passion and my love for what was happening in home groups continued to grow deeper and all the while at the, my relationship with this guy, this pastor as well was growing deeper. He became not just my pastor but he was my friend. He was my mentor and he was a confidant for me. And so when the church came to me that spring and said, hey, we want to consider you coming on, that you consider coming on staff, we'll, you'll be full-time and we'll pay you part-time. <clears throat> Which is how ministry always starts. I said, yeah, I, sure. I mean, I, it feels like this is the natural decision for me. But instantly I knew there was things going on inside me. I knew that as soon as they asked that question, I started to feel things that I did not want to feel. I knew I started to feel like, am I ready for this? Am I going to be good enough for this? I mean, I'm not even 30 years old, and there's people way older than me. Are they even going to respect me? Are they even going to listen to the things that I have to say to them? What happens if I fail at this? But, because I'm really good at you know, dealing with my emotions, I bottled those up, stuffed them in a ball, and stuck them down deep. I didn't deal with them. And things went really well for the church for the next year. I mean, we were growing. The church was growing in numbers. People were getting connected. We were multiplying our groups, doing things in the community. Lives were being changed. My life was being changed. My family's life was being changed. And this church became our family. And all while this was going on, I had another family that I loved deeply, and that was uh, my Army family. And I, I served in the Montana Army National Guard for many years, and up, up to this point, I was still serving. And <clears throat> the things that I was experiencing 
in home groups and in ministry, I wanted for these guys. These were guys that I had a bond with that I'd never experienced with in my life. They, we'd done a lot of things, good and bad, over the years. We were overseas together. I mean, I still have a bond with some of these guys still today. I haven't seen them for probably four or five years, but I know that as soon as I did, we'd pick up right where we left off. But I knew that what I was experiencing, what I had, I wanted them to have. I wanted them to experience it too. So it, it just naturally occurred to me that I guess I should become a pastor for the military. So I looked into becoming a chaplain. And I started to research that, and my wife and I started praying about it. And we decided, you know, this, this does seem like what our next chapter is in life, for you to go do this. You can still do what you've been doing, being involved in home groups in our local church, and, and bring that to what you have in the military. And I was so excited that I was going to be able to do this thing that I was passionate about. These two things, I was going to, these two worlds that I love so much were going to be able to come together. So I went to my pastor friend, the guy that I'd been working with for the past year, and I sat down with him to, to tell him the exciting news. But he did not respond the way that I thought he would. He did not. I was expecting something like what I experienced with my friend a couple of months ago. You know, he was going to encourage me, help push me in that direction, continue to engage with me and help me grow as a, as a man of God and a leader in the church. But he went the opposite direction of that. And for the months after that, our relationship really started to deteriorate. And there was a constant tension between the two of us. And then there, there would be times where we'd be sitting having a conversation and out of, the, out of the blue, he'd tell me a story about a friend of his who was in, in the ministry and also was in the chaplain corps. And he told him that there's no way that you can do both, that, that both of them suffer. You can't possibly be both. And he would follow that up with, you can't serve two masters. And I was just confused. I did not understand why. Why this would be the way that he would handle this. So I did what I do best, and I started to withdraw. And I started to build up those walls inside my heart and in my mind. And everything finally came to a head that fall. And my wife and I were sitting in a meeting with him with him and the elder from the church. And we'd been meeting all day, all day. And our emotions were all raw and we we're all tired. And we're about to walk out the door and he stops and he looks at me and he says, Adam, You may be a great leader in the military, but you will never be a good leader in the church. That was and is still the most devastating thing that I've ever had said to me. I 
was at a loss. I had no idea what was going on inside of me. So I built walls higher, faster, thicker, trying to keep all that out. But the problem was that those feelings were already there. They were already there. And I did not deal with them. I thought I was dealing with them. My family and friends would ask me, hey, how are you doing? Is everything okay? Are you working through this? Oh, yeah, everything's great. I'm doing good. For the past 10 years, I thought, everything is good. I'm doing okay. I could talk about it with my wife and feel no emotion. I wouldn't feel anger or sadness, nothing. I would just be like, oh, yeah, okay, so everything is good. I've forgiven him. I've moving on. But this last week would, was definitely... Uh, it definitely became apparent to me that that was not true. As I was sitting at my desk Wednesday morning, prepping for today, just typing away, I started to think about telling you guys that story and how I was going to present it. And how, if I started to get emotional, how I could squish it down and, and not show that to you. And then all of a sudden, something broke loose inside of me and I had all this emotion start to well up and it just started, I felt it in my chest, like this huge weight upon my chest and I started to cry and I had no idea what the heck was going on. So I got up from the chair, I backed away and I started walking around the living room. I'm like, where did that come from? What in the world is that? So I was like, okay, I, I got it controlled, I got it stuffed, I'm good, I'll go sit. Go back and write, I have to finish this stinking thing for Sunday. <laughs> I sat back down and then it all came back again. And I had, to, I had to run from it again. I withdrew. I grabbed my phone and I was dialing up Thad. I knew he was in a meeting, but I was getting ready to text him. I was going to say, dude, there's, there's no way that I can do this. I cannot deal with this. This is bringing up stuff that I thought I had dealt with. I can't get in front of a bunch of people and talk about it. You're going to have to do a video or something else. I don't know. It's not my problem, not staff. <laughs> but instead, the text that I sent him, sent him said, I'm cursing your name right now because I'm feeling all these things that I thought I'd dealt with a long time ago. And he responded with, thumbs up. <laughs> I obviously do not have this thing down, and I don't think we're ever meant to completely get this perfect. We just need to be moving in that direction, getting better at owning our, our emotions, naming those things and feeling those. Now, if there's one thing I know for sure about this whole withdrawal thing is that as you isolate yourself, all you end up doing is giving yourself ample time to be inside your head, to come up with all these excuses as to why you are where you are, why you're feeling the way you're feeling. And you start to build this case for why you are who you are. And then you go out and you interact with people, and you do something, and you're like, see, that's why nobody loves me. See, this is, see what I did right here? This is why I'm not good enough. 
we start to give a voice to those lies and we start to believe every devastating thing that's ever been said or done to us. And this is playing right into the hand of our enemy because the fact of the matter is is that Satan's goal is for you to be separated from other people. He doesn't want you being in community because he knows that's where you are at your most vulnerable point when you have nobody around you. So don't make it easy on him. Don't make it easy on Satan by choosing to disengage from the community that he's given you. Engage in that community that God has put you in. It's vital for our emotional health. Uh, Okay, going long. So we're going to move to our communion time. So if you're serving communion, if you could go over to the side and start passing those things, that would be awesome. Here at Real Life, we do believe that uh, God's table has a seat for every person. And he has an invitation out there for every person to sit at that table. And so we, have a, we like to have an open one here. So if you have chosen to trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you want to celebrate his death, burial, and resurrection with us today, please grab the, the bread and the juice as it come by, comes by you, and we will take those things at the end if you'll hold on to them. In the meantime, I wanted us to kind of, I wanted us to talk about the questions that are for home group this week. Question number one is this. Why do you avoid the emotions? This is such a good question. I wish I had been the one that came up with it. Because, I mean, we, none of us really know very well how to answer this on our own. It does not come easy. That is why community is so important. That's why these are questions for home groups, not for you to go home and, and ponder on your own. Because if you don't have somebody in your life that can be able to help you work through this stuff, many times you end up on the end, on the end where you're making choices that are not healthy for you or for your community. So get into community. Get into a home group. Start building those relationships that with people that will be able to come into your life and encourage you when you need encouragement, to call out the potential in you that is there, that God has put inside you. Question number two. Of these four avoiding mechanisms that we mentioned, which one is your go-to? I shared with you guys a little bit of my story and my go-to mechanism of avoiding and withdrawing. It would be beneficial for you if you were able to share that with your home group this week. It has been a difficult week for me, but yet exciting in the sense that I am making movement forward. Question three. What would be... What would being able to give a voice to what is really going on in your heart 
Uh, well, wait a second. What would it do for you to be able to give a voice to what is really going on in your heart? Yeah, I said it right. The truth of the matter is this. There is a voice inside there, and it's, it's going to speak. And you get the choice to tell that voice how it's going to speak. You get the choice to say, okay, you're going to speak truth. You're going to speak love. You're going to be able to accurately identify the emotions that are going on inside. Because if you don't, that voice becomes one that speaks lies, one that stirs up strife, causes doubt and fear. Give it a voice. Number four, what do you need to conquer to start talking about where you really are? What are the roadblocks that are sitting in your way that are keeping you from able to, being able to deal with these emotions? You know, are you sitting there today and you're just worried? You're afraid of what people might think or say about you or to you if you stand there and talk about your emotions or show emotions you don't want to show it because it would make you look weak. Or maybe you're sitting there and you're not engaged in your community because you've been hurt by somebody in the church before and you're only here because you think that's the right thing to do. But you're not going to get into a home group. Maybe you're just afraid of where God has you going next. What he has next in store for you. You know, that night that we talk about every time when we take communion, there was more going on that night than just a supper. After that, they go to the garden and Jesus is praying and he is battling all kinds of emotions. All kinds of things welling up inside him that he has to face. And he goes to God over and over and he's like, God, take this from me. If you can, just take it, just take it. But in the end, he says, not, your, not my will, but your will be done. He was able to face those emotions and step out on the other side of them free, not controlled by them. And this time of communion is our opportunity to step out in freedom with him, to remember what it is that he accomplished for us. So on that night, he took the bread and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take this and eat. This is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the transgression, uh, forgiveness of sins. Father, I thank you for this time this morning, and Lord, I thank you for getting me through it once again. Lord, I thank you that you did not allow me to squish everything that I'm feeling right now. Father, I want to pray that for my friends and family here as well. Lord, I pray that you will uh, be working inside them and give them the courage to engage in their emotions. 
to not react poorly or in an unhealthy manner that destroys community, but react in a way that builds community up, builds themselves up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life on the Palouse. You can find out more about us by visiting us online at liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.